A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF Podcast. It's Friday, December 8th. Having dominated Hollywood's cinematic landscape for decades, Angelina Jolie is now moving into uncharted territory, the world of fashion. This week, she opened the doors to Atelier Jolie, a multi-purpose brick-and-mortar workshop at 57 Great Jones Street in New York, once home to art world legends Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat. The choice of the historic location reveals the motivations, philosophies, and aspirations that have shaped Angelina's unexpected move. I don't think of it as fashion. I think about it as um, self-expression and community is what I think I started to miss. And I wanted to be able to do that and do that with my family and play and create and share and wear things more responsibly and with more awareness. This week on the BOF Podcast, I sit down with Angelina Jolie for an exclusive interview and her first ever podcast interview to trace her creative journey and explore the artistry, inclusivity, and community building that define her latest venture. Here's Angelina Jolie on the BOF Podcast. Hello. Hello. Hi. Nice to meet you. It's so... Lovely to meet you in this very unusual virtual way, but I'm actually really thrilled to have this conversation. I never imagined I would have a conversation like this with you because I never really knew you're interested in the fashion industry. But having read a little bit about what you're up to, it seems very consistent with my external 
impression of you and so deeply rooted in values. So that's where I actually wanted to start today, is just really to understand some of the things that have influenced these values, which seem such a big part of the filter or lens through which you make so many decisions. Could you share a little bit about the early experiences or individuals or moments that influenced your values? You know, I'm not really good about often talking about me and myself and my influences and values. I'm really, I'm, I'll try. I think I feel like I'm still in a process of growing and learning and changing all the time. And like many people, my influences are my mother was very close influence to me early on travel and meeting people in other countries and, and being aware of other people's other histories a lot and, and very conscious of what I had not been educated, you know, had not been a part of my education in school or, or in my environment growing up. So I think the young punk in me was, was more saw it as a, what is it I'm not aware of? What is it that is being told to us as what we should accept or what is normal or what is fair? And then just at every turn trying to question that. But I also think I'm like a lot of people where I have a, just a natural sense of, you know, I don't understand when people don't see people as equal or aren't interested in the history and cultures of others and their value. I, I, it doesn't make any sense to me. So I think like a lot of people, I just, I'm just open in that way. Yeah, that makes sense. When I think about the person that I've followed, like many people over the years, you've been someone who's been really vocal about addressing inequality. And it, when I'm reading about this new business of yours, you seem to have recognized something that we've been talking about here on the business of fashion for a long time, which is that actually the fashion industry is an industry that's in some ways deeply unequal. Yes, in many ways. One of the worst. Yeah, in which so many of the people who do the work in this industry don't get credit for the work that they do and the contributions that they make. I think that. I think also where we source our materials from and how people are treated. I think the profit margins. It took me a long time. It's still taking me a long time as a consumer, like most people, when we say, okay, we make a choice and we say, I want to be more responsible. I I want to enjoy fashion, but I don't want to do damage, not only to the environment. I'd like to make sure it's ethically created and that I, nobody's hurt in the process of making whatever it is that I'm wearing. And that is becoming, as I started to question it, harder and harder to get to the root of. And you start to realize that it's a part of the business itself right now is to, to make something seem like it's fairer than it is, or to suggest something is made in a way that is better than it was, or or that somehow there was a contribution of some group that really were treated well. You know, it's just, it's very, very hard to know. So I'm still, I'm learning every day. It is a very complex little web <laughs> and it's been a certain way for a long time. So this was born of me wanting to enjoy, and I don't think of it as fashion. I think about it as um, self-expression and community is what I think I started to miss. And I wanted to be able to do that and do that with my family and play and create and share and wear things more responsibly and, and with more awareness. And so, as I said, I'm still learning, but I started this company with a room full of lawyers and people who work on sustainability and ethics and decided I would start with what are we not doing? Right. Why don't we start there too? You know, what are you not doing? 
Well, you know, again, none of us are perfect, right? There's so many good companies out there, and I'm one of the people coming in to try to figure things out. So I, I want to just be really clear about that, and I'm learning as I go. But one of the things that was made very clear to me was when you ask people, in, in whether it be people working on environment or, or any, any aspect of um, people who are concerned about things happening in the world, they say it's not to find the perfect green this or the perfect that. It's just to consume less. Just really if everybody could consume less and that the answer isn't a different, you know, brand or a different thing. It's just consume less. So part of what the goal is to try to make things that are really well made and are only those few things to not overconsume, right? We don't make loads of everything to encourage that what is made can last a long time and can also be reused in different ways. So, for example, I, I made something where the, you kind of change the parts. So you don't have to buy a new whole suit. You can change the parts, right? So don't consume another whole suit or outfit. So ideas, you know, this is one aspect of it. But the other really big one is where we get our materials. Um, decided not to make any new materials, which was a bit limiting in trying to use. I started I had to learn a lot about that, but we chose not to start with any new materials until I learn more about which ones are really ones I feel I can stand behind. I decided to start with only dead stock, vintage, a lot of vintage, you know, materials that exist already. I was just at a lunch. I literally just came back from this lunch and there's this young designer sitting in front of me who only works with dead stock materials. And I asked him, you know, what's the biggest challenge that you face in sourcing materials only through that kind of channel. And he said, it's just hard to find stuff. Are you finding that as well? Like just <laughs> not knowing how to get enough vintage dead stock fabric. I think, yes, that's part of it. And good stuff. Because to me, this works if we can make items and sell to a customer something that they really think is one of the most beautiful things they have and well-made. Not just, we're not leaning on, the fact that it was done in a way that was more responsible, just we actually think it only works, this whole movement works if it's just the clothes are that good. And so to find the exquisite fabrics and, and enough of them. So I have a lot of things that are only one and had to learn about, you know, that you make a pattern. And if you change your fabric, you have to change the pattern again. And it costs money every time you change a fabric, every time you make an item. So it's a different business model and it's a different education. But then I hope I can encourage customers and people around the world to think of it as part of the fun because we're on, it's like a treasure hunt for, you know, beautiful vintage and, and things that are already existing. And, and then what can you make with them and what are you looking for? And, and then hopefully you invest more in your items and, and they matter to you more. You're less inclined to just throw them away. The other thing I read about, which is a topic close to my heart, is the role of the people who make our clothes, the artisans, the tailors. You know, that's another big part of the vision that you have laid out. Can you talk a little bit about why that was important to you? Yes, well, I wanted to make sure that everyone is treated well and, and it's a real team and, and there's... Um, I'd like to believe that we can have good, successful businesses where we don't have to, where nobody has to be you're not hurting the little guy. You're not, you're not taking advantage along the supply chain just to make that extra profit. It's not something that should be done. And I hope that customers that will matter to them. So they will say, I want to know 
I want to know that everyone was treated well and a part of this. And yes, also making people more aware of who makes clothes. When I was young and I would do a, an event, I knew who I was working with, really, on the design. And I knew who was really making it and who'd been beating all weekend or on their hands and knees or pinning it or doing it. And then I, I would see who got the credit. And it never felt fair. Right. And also just as a creative, I, I think they're just amazing creatives. It's not just about me, like a kindness, somebody who can pattern and bead and, you know, shape with fabric. They're sculptors. Absolutely. With such extraordinary talents, you know, so. Absolutely. And I think the way our industry communicates about the creative side of fashion misses out on the role that the makers play in the creative process. So like a designer may have a vision and they may sketch something or they may drape something, but people actually have to realize that vision and to go from a sketch to a 3D, 360 degree thing that, that fits on someone's body is a, like the creativity involved in that is often completely un- misunderstood. I think so. And and what I wanted to do is I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have a place, which is another part of our atelier or our home, is to make it possible for the customers to meet with creators, other designers, other tailors, meet with, come and play. That's going to be slow growing because we don't have many people right away and many appointments. But I'm hope, I'm really hoping that somebody who's never spent time, never had the privilege of spending time with with a group of people who they can say, help me understand my body, help me understand tailoring, play with me, because the, I want to shape my closet and I want to have a, a say in it. I want to contribute and I want to learn because then that's what most excites me as an artist when when people come together and make something and, and uh, including every customer and every person has a sense of design, of course. Every person, if you bring them forward, and then they get to really see and meet uh, great tailors, pattern makers, other designers, and start to just be more involved in not just clothing, involved in their own creativity and as they put themselves out into the world, their own self. Okay, so you've laid out a vision, which I think is pretty disruptive, trying to do Thank you. a lot from the beginning. Yes. You're trying to be more sustainable, you're trying to create more understanding of the creative process, you're trying to get your customer and their own creativity reflected in the end product, and you're trying to do so in a way that's just more systematically fair in an industry that's systematically unfair. (laughs) Where did you start? Like going from the vision in that room with the bunch of lawyers, like how did you start realizing the vision? Well, I think in part, as an individual and as a mom, I would just think, where would I want to go? If I could dream of it, if I could take my family right now and make an appointment, go somewhere, what would I want to do? Where would I want to go that would teach us a bit, but really get our creativity going where I could uh, learn about people I love and see them make things and play and create and and do it in a way that doesn't hurt anybody. So a lot of it's that. What does that look like? What would it be? What would I love? I'm bad at answering all this because a lot of this craziness is in my head and people only understand if they just go, right? right. So please, please, if you're listening, just go. and, and 57 then t- Jones Street, 57 right? Great Jones Street. And Great then go Jones and, and, yeah. t- and tell me what, what needs to improve. You know, it's a beginning. 
you know, my, my goal is to go international and, and always have every branch owned locally. So we build a, an international community with these principles and, and, and this play is a word I, I tend to use probably far too often, but I think it's important. And so we would think, well, what if we do it this way? And then I would think, okay, well, creatively, some people, for example, working with a tailor, they might just be frozen. It's too much to take on. So then what's a baby step for someone who's never done it? So then was born the other ideas of, okay, you could change the collars of something. You can change the lining of something. You can add a patch to something simple and get you moving. And then what's the next step? You can splatter paint. You can silkscreen. You can embroider. And how can we get really anyone finding something that meets where they're at and helps them to see that they have their own voice? I think that's probably what is at the core of this so much is I see that there's a lot in the world of people saying, we want to influence you to do what we tell you to do and look how we tell you to look and wear what we tell you to wear. And I don't think that's a good thing. Did you feel that way in your interaction with this industry? You know, in part of your work, you have to be presented in a certain way on a red carpet or in a, at an event. Has that played a role in shaping this perception you have that the industry tells people how they should be as opposed to being a conduit for that person to be who they want to be? I think less the industry. I mean, I, I, I'm not, I was a bit rebellious since I was, I don't really listen well to somebody telling me to, like, I haven't had a stylist or things like that. I'll do something for a, a thing here and there and work with somebody, but I don't work regularly with people. And I, for better or for worse, I've made my own decisions over the years. And I'm, so the mistakes are my fault. And some of the interesting ones were collaborations with great tailors. Actually, this man, Luigi, was my, he's, he's passed away since, but he taught me a lot and we created a lot together. But no, I think it's very, very important, especially for, for, for everyone, but especially creative people. You have to have that freedom and you have to make a mess and you have to figure out what you really love. And I, maybe I just missed that because I feel like I started to not dress up. I think for a long time, I've just worn out things and stay in big black coats and don't want to play because I don't, I haven't found the joy of it because there was so much that was bothering me about the business. But now I want to play. <laughs> so what changed? Like, how did that desire to want to play? Where did it come from? I think my children, actually. Okay. Yeah. Being a mom and saying, well, what are we going to do if we take, they, they, you know, they're growing, they're changing, they have a, a new self evolving. And how can I help encourage that? And in many different ways and in, in the one small part that is, okay, let's, what is your fashion or what is your look or what's your jacket or what's your, I started to realize that it was quite, I didn't like what was presented. What was the, the way we would discover that. And I want to know them. I want to take my kids to 57. They've already been there and they, they've helped build this whole business with their opinions and their ideas and their, you know, we're in it together, but I, I can't wait for them to walk in. Viv's already been to it open. Some of them have been there, but she's, she's the only one who's been to it finished. And she called and she was, I won't tell secrets about her, but she was starting to explore things that she hadn't. And I was so happy as somebody who is so excited to know who they are. That's the joy. And a family. It's a family full of artists. It's, it's a collective, really. 
Well, that's the power of fashion. You know, and sometimes the word fashion, you know, when people hear the word fashion, they think of like superficial things. They think of glamour and the way the fashion industry is presented in the media and often misunderstood. But ultimately, fashion is the most democratic form of self-expression. Everyone, whether they're doing it consciously or not, wears clothes that express who they are, what they stand for, what's important to them. Mm-hmm. And that is the most powerful at the age when you're growing up. And you're realizing that you have this agency through what you wear to say, this is who I am. So in that process of, of kind of building this with your kids, like what have you learned about that expression or what you wanted to make sure this new organization or collective addresses? Well, we are still growing. I mean, I think that's the important thing is I wanted to make sure that there was a a set of rules and values. I wanted to make sure we weren't, that there was a base so we could now start to get more free, get more wild. So it has to happen now. I've learned a bit, but I have a feeling I have no idea what's possible. And I think that's what, what I've come to understand about design, whatever design it is and, and in the process of making this the only way it could be made, even the shaping of it or putting things together, we're, we're selling other people's clothing. So finding those people, meeting those designers, learning about what they've been doing, identifying which are a match for the atelier and, and that we can learn about each other, and them meeting each other and seeing each other's... Cl- this is the fun, and then the contributing designers coming in, and we're all talking about everything from fabrics to shapes to... In Simon, I've sent some of some patterns that I was playing with and fabrics, and then I sent them to Simon, and then I watched what he did to them with his amazing, you know, textile treatments. Who's Simon? Simon Uglis. He's one of the um, contributing designers who's a brilliant, brilliant man. He's been around our business for a very, very long time. He's wonderful. And uh, we'll be selling some of the items that he's created, and also he's going to be a contributing designer. But I'm such a fan of his work, so to create... And then see what he creates. Isn't that when it's at its best, right? It's when we think back, I wished I was a part of a lot of those movements in history where people, real collectives were formed and artists inspired each other and and created together. So the step with this is, can we do this and ask the customers to also be a part of that? And how does that work? Another one of the contributing designers is someone we have in common and when I was reading today, I found out you're working with Justin Smith, the milliner. Oh, he's yeah. We're set. We're selling some of his items. Yeah. Yeah. How did you meet him? Oh, he. We met uh, years ago on Maleficent. He he's a milliner, so he worked on some of the hats. Yeah. The, he's the so hats. talented. He and I, um, we went on a trip to Indonesia many many years ago because we were both shortlisted for this award, and I found him so brilliant. So when I saw his name on your your list today. I was like, wow, that's great. Um, For someone like him or Simon or some of these other people that you've mentioned, it could be a huge platform for them to take their skills to a much bigger audience. Oh, I hope so. I mean, I, I feel lucky to work with them. So it's my pleasure to connect more people to their work. So that has been part of the fun. It brings me to my next question, which is, you know, like when people think about celebrity brands, and I know that you're not at least in my view, you're not like a traditional or typical celebrity person. I think of you as having a lot more 
breadth in the terms of the way you use your notoriety or celebrity to have impact. You know, now that you're in it and you're doing it and you're kind of using your visibility as a way of drawing attention to some of these designers and the vision of what we're trying to build, like how do you see this as being different from maybe other brands that are created by famous people? Well, it's not my brand. Ah. So that's probably the biggest difference. I'm not front and center. It is called Atelier Jolie, though, right? So that your name is in it. Sure, of course. It's my family. It's like our home. So I've built more of a, a home. And I'm one of the creators that play in the home, but not more than the other people in the family. So I think that's probably the biggest difference is, you know, the, the, the pieces that I've made, I've made some items of clothing weren't to be um, even my line or fashion, you know, all that kind of it's more just to have basics at the atelier to start to learn and have people work with and play. And everything I've made has a trans is able to be transformed. It was something I worked on because that's me learning and me making sure that there's something a basic for customers. But no, I'm not interested in becoming a known designer. I'm interested in being a part of a, a good family. So there's no fashion shows and there's no hoopla and there's none of that stuff that people associate with fashion. But how will you spread the word about what you're doing? Well, I think one, I've kind of already accepted it's okay. It's slow growing. You know, it's not my goal is to make sure it can work, not how big it can be or, or, you know, successful. I just I want it to work and work as it should work well and make sure that we hold to what we believe matters so to kind of know that it's not going to be that kind of profit for a bit and not that kind of business. And that's why I'm doing it all myself. And I don't have some kind of, I'm not within a big company or anything. Just so we can, I can hold on to it, which may or may not have been a good choice because there's been a lot to learn, but I, it's, it's good. You know, you hope word of mouth and you hope that people will say, I think, you know, some things like websites and Instagrams and people being aware of it, but I think it's okay that it grows slowly and people learn what it is and, and hopefully the quality of the clothing or the experience will bring people to it and, and make them want to come back. We'll be right back with more on the BOF podcast. One thing you did, which is how I first heard about this, was you did the collaboration with Gabriella Hurst when, you know, as a part of her final one of her final contributions at Chloe. Is that something you could see yourself doing with other brands or other individuals that have a shared sensibility or set of values? Yeah, I mean, we're different, right? The Atelier and Chloe are very, very different businesses. Mm-hmm. We're, we're B Corp, but we're very, very different base values. Well, not, not, I wouldn't say that. We're not, that's wrong to say. We're not different in our, I think it, it's just the way we approach it. They're for a luxury brand. They made a lot of changes under Gabby and, and as a B Corps, they've done a lot to make certain steps in absolutely a better direction. And it was, it was wonderful to work with her and learn from them, but we are different. And so it's more, it's a way for me to fund the things I want to fund. It's a way for me to volunteer more my designs with them as an individual to learn because it's. I'm so fortunate to be able to have the education of work next to Gabby for a bit and learn about how she does what she does and the company of Chloe and learn what they do and how they do it. She's such an expert. I mean, I've been on calls with her where 
she just knows so many of the issues in the industry and has such a great set of resources and like an encyclopedic knowledge of how to overcome some of the systemic issues in the industry. So she's a great person to learn from. She does. And she's really well-meaning. You know, there's a lot of people out there that are really there for each other, like pushing each other, sharing, as you said, sharing information and just wanting to see everybody work well and succeed. So she's been wonderful. But yes, but it's a very separate thing. It's not really, we don't sell that line in the atelier and it's more, um, but so that was like kind of, I, I jump out and do some things to gain some knowledge and raise some funds that I put back into the house. And then the house is a bit separate, is separate. Got it. So one of the reasons we're having this conversation today is this 57 Great Jones Street space is opening. And by the time this podcast goes out, it will have been opened. You know, can you walk us through the experience that someone might expect or what you're hoping people will experience and how that's different from, say, another fashion retail or shopping experience might be? There's a part of it I can't explain, and a lot of it is you'll make it your own, so it's how you use it in a way. It feels, also feels like just so crazy that it's opening, and it's this um, going to be this real, real thing. It's been this place that I've sat on the floor eating Chinese food trying to figure out what to do you know, for so long. You know, I hope you walk in, and you know, we're not changing the front. We're not putting a sign up or anything like that. Very important because it's a landmark building, and it's, it's a building that's really especially the front has belonged to those who've been um, painting on it for a very, very long time. And they paint on it regularly and it's a long history to it and it's very, it's very important. And so that is not my place to change or put some big sign over. So you'll have to find it. <laughs> so the Andy Warhol Basquiat legacy remains intact and everything that's happened there since. Well, yeah, and this is not something I, of course, created after this was the people, the graffiti artists and different people who really um, are deeply connected to these artists and to the culture. And so it's it was it's been a place for them for a very long time. And the front is something that they have used as a space and created on and they, they paint it regularly. And so that was very important to me. There will be no sign. There will be no painting. There will be no nothing. That front belongs to them always. And then you'll come in and meet some very nice people who hopefully will be there to, who are all creatives, you know, hiring people who also have uh, been working in design and went to school for design and young people who are not just interested in selling, but also creative people themselves. And there'll be different um, things to purchase, all um, pre-existing materials and a few different artists. And so is it all bespoke or is there going to be rails where I could just buy something that already exists or does everything get adapted? No, it's, it's a shop. So you can go in and you could just buy a patch and go get a cup of coffee and put that patch on your clothes and you've done something and that's cool. And there's a whole story behind the patches and the, and the extraordinary artists who volunteered and donated the patches. You could uh, purchase some clothes that are hanging on the racks you could alter those pieces. You could buy pieces that go, if it's my line, there are different parts and pieces. You will also be encouraged to learn about, say you buy an artist coat and you decide to take it downstairs to the splatter room, or you decide to silkscreen it, or you decide to put a patch on it. So there are these ways that if you choose to um, take that next step and, and you, you can do that because we wanted to have that process there. 
And then then there'll be appointments upstairs, but those are going to be harder to organize, have as many, get as many people in as we want and, and that. So that's going to start, but it's going to take time. So we want to make sure there's absolutely enough on the ground floor for everybody to to start working with us in this way. And this wonderful organization, um, a group of chefs, Eat Off Beat, are running the cafe. It's like their space and they're amazing people. And it'll be food from a lot of their cultures. And can anyone just rock up or do you need to make an appointment? How, like, what if like a thousand people showed up there on Wednesday morning like trying to break in? They can come in. I mean, we might, we've talked about there may be needed like an occupancy or something like that, making sure for things like that. But everybody can go. The upstairs is where you make the appointment. But other than that, and I tried to make it as open as possible and, and hope that it goes well. You know, you never know the kind of people that will come in or, how they're going to use the space, but I would hope there's some goodwill and some genuine interest in supporting it the way it, it's meant to be. And I hope people are kind to the people that work there and they have a good experience. <laughs> and so um, a few minutes ago, you said that you want to do this in other places. So this isn't just going to be a New York City thing. Like this is something that if the model works and after you've learned, you would replicate this kind of space in other cities? Yes, we're in talks of doing that in other places. Part of this is my having traveled a lot and seen that it's not just the fashion business. It's also just giving people ownership of their work. And so I would like to partner with people in different countries and I'd like them to share ownership of the place and of the designs and have their own and it be more there. The atelier that will be in Japan should feel very different, should be owned differently, should be run differently, but same principles and yeah. So that's the hope. And the hope is that one day we all share and create together somehow. We all, there's a, there's a network because I think that's for a lot of people working in sustainability. What I found is a lot of it, as you said, whether it be the fabrics or just how to do a lot of this stuff. And it costs a lot. It, it's complicated between lawyers and contacts and putting the pieces together. So the more that we can all join together, the better. It's a really interesting, compelling and unusual vision. I've been working in this industry for a long time, but I've never quite heard of something like this. And I'm really curious the next time I'm in New York City to come check it out. Because as you said earlier, it's hard to describe, it sounds like. But I think I get the sense of what it might feel like that, you know, not only do I feel like I'm in a space where, you know, I can experience and see the creativity of other people, I can also inject my own creativity into that experience, which feels like co-creation. Yes, that's right. There's even labels. You can put your own name on your label and stick it in your, right? That's lovely. Well, thank you. That's nice of you to say. Well, to conclude, I always end these podcast interviews with a couple of questions around advice. And, you know, as someone who's so deeply involved with humanitarian efforts, what advice do you have to offer for other people who have similar sentiments or values as you do, and want to find a way of pursuing their personal passions to make an impact on the world. Do you have any advice to offer to someone young listening to this podcast all around the world? Well, I started working early with, with the refugees, with refugee families, because the injustice kind of set me on fire. The, the understanding, the families themselves were so inspiring, taught me so much about life, the, the realities of what people didn't know, the reasons they were displaced. As a human being, I just... It's something that, that draws me to it. I would say to anyone, 
you know what it is that does that to you. Just like you know what excites you as a creative or what kinds of people you like to be around or what makes you laugh, right? You also know what it is that really stirs your soul and makes you upset. And that's it for you. That's the thing. And what, and whatever that is, you find other people that share that same feeling and spend time with them and go deeply into the work and listen. I think that's the most important thing I've, I've, I spent a long time working, for example, with refugee organizations. I worked a lot with the UN and I have really changed a lot of my life to only really be led by the people who have lived experience. So I work now with refugee led organizations. I've always worked directly with people, mm -hmm. but I think it's very important that the people with lived experience and people from the countries themselves really take leadership now more than ever and not international communities and not international minds and voices making decisions on behalf of others and that there is more of a seat at the table for people who have actually had the experience. So I think we can all push for that. We listen to other people. We push for them. We don't speak for them. And, uh, yeah, we try to find the good in the world. There's a lot of good in this world and a lot of good people that actually really would fight for someone else. You know, there's a lot of good people and just remembering that and finding those people. You said that the issues of refugees and displaced people stirs your soul. You seem like such a like aligned person with regards to your values and like which guide your behaviors and decisions. Like how does this new business collective how does it align with that thing that stirred your soul? Like, what was it about this that you decided that this is something I want to dedicate my time to? I mean, in part, a lot of people are displaced because of climate. So a lot of people are, there's a lot of conflicts that if you look closely, it's actually caused by changes in our climate and the deserts expanding, the lack of resources, lack of water, lack of opportunities, the unfair treatment and unfair trade that peoples have experienced for many years. So... It's kind of better business, better trade, giving opportunities for people to work for themselves is the best thing we can all do for everyone, uh, you know. And and so that's why, to me, doing business globally and giving uh, partnering is something that matters to me more than just uh, donations and, you know, and charities, and that, which I believe in. But I think partnering, partnerships, th th that that is what people want to be able to make their own way and with their own skills and their own many talents and minds. And so that's, that is a part of this. There's a lot of, there's also parts of the line we've already, I mean, practically there are people who are working on this who are refugees. Again, it's not out of a me being kind and charitable. It's because they're just so extraordinary and talented and wonderful. And I'm so fortunate. So all of our chefs from Eat Off Beat are immigrant and refugee chefs, and they're bringing their many talents and flavors of their community and their cultures in. Women from Afghanistan worked with me on a lot of the line through this wonderful organization, Zarif Designs. She's a designer who's been around a long time and helped connect me to these women. So I think, I guess it's just that. It's really seeing like, you know, just how can we all be, how can we rise together and then work and do work and have business and, um, be a global family, you know, because that's my dream. Maybe it's obvious with my own family that that's something that I love. But <laughs> that's my, that's my secret. That's my, that's my happy thought, you know. And that's where the inspiration, I guess, in part came from. Well, as I said, it's a really beautiful vision. And thank you for taking time to share it with me in between filming. 
And I plan to definitely check it out next time I'm in New York. Anyone who wants to check it out, make sure you go. It's 57 Great Jones Street. And it's a really historic building, as Angelina just said. So uh, there's a lot more meaning and history behind that building than it just being a building or a space for a new business. So thank you so much, Angelina. Thank you. Thank you, Amrin. It was so nice to talk to you. I, I appreciate it. The BOF podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark and Eric Bria in the BOF studio team. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.